So perhaps you'll recognize this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, friends, so reads Invictus, the the famous work of that Victorian-era poet, William Ernest Henley, and not only evokes sort of a kind of classic English stoicism, you know, that stiff upper lip that us Brits, right, love to promote, right, this head bloody, button bowed kind of notion. You know, it also captures the, the conviction that our individual destinies lie with us. It was very much what Wes was just praying a moment ago, right, that we are the masters of our fate, that we are the captains of our soul. And friends, that That resonates with us, doesn't it? Resonates with our own American spirit. Resonates with with the the, the autonomy and the independence that we love. So it's perhaps no surprise that a poem like this has often been quoted in dire and difficult circumstances. So William Churchill, for example, quoted this poem while Nazi bombs were raiding down on London right before the House of Commons in 1941. It was also the case that U.S. POWs, one James Stockdale recalls being past the last stanza of this poem that was written with rat droppings on toilet paper from a fellow U.S. POW to try to encourage him to hold firm and to stand fast. Nelson Mandela, he memorized this poem as well and, and would recite it to other inmates when he himself was imprisoned for nearly 30 years, right? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I wonder what you think. Is that kind of your approach to life? Is that how you view things? Right? That all that is needed for life, right? Not just to survive, but to thrive in this life. Right? It's, it's not found in government, certainly not found in God. It's found within, in here, in my unconquerable soul, as he writes. Friends, to think more about this kind of question and similar questions, I want us to turn back this morning to our study in the Old Testament book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, we're in chapters 18 and 19 this morning, which you can find on page 126. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you can find it on page 126 of those red Bibles provided and the seat back before you. And if you're just joining us, Numbers is really the story of why it took Israel 40 years to cross a desert that should have taken them no more than four weeks. And as we've seen, God, yes, he delivered them from Egypt. He had fed them. He had ordered them. He had promised even to go out before them into the promised land, and yet they rebelled against him. And they rebelled against the people that God had placed over them. And we thought about last week that unholy trinity, right, of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, and we tragically saw where that rebellion led them as a people. And friends, that brings us to chapters 18 and 19. So if chapters 16 and 17 reflect in some ways how the priests and the Levites, right, how they weren't to relate together, there weren't to be uprisings among them, sort of a negative example last week, chapter 18 opens up with how the priests and the Levites should work together. So if, you're, if you've got a Bible open, just look at me to Numbers 18, verse 4. We read right there, Numbers 18, 4. They, referring to the Levites, shall join you, the priests, and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you, referring to the priests, shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. 
Right, so if we stop right there, what are we seeing? Instead of the kind of suspicion and opposition right, between the priests and the Levites we saw last week, instead, right, there's to be cooperate, cooperation. And cooperation what? For the people's protection, that the, the wrath of God wouldn't fall on the people. But when they finally arrive in the promised land, friends, how, how will the priests and how will the Levites support themselves? Right, they're not going to be given allotments of land like the other tribes. So how will they live? Well, that's what Numbers 18, 8 to 20 describes. First, how the priests will be provided for in verses 8 to 20. How the priests will be provided for. And then, uh, as well, we're going to see, well, let's just look at that uh, for a minute. Look at, um, for example, Numbers 18, 19. Right? We read earlier they're going to be meat and sacrifices and first fruits. And then Numbers 18, verse 19. For the priests, we read, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. So that's all the blessing that's going to come to the priests. That's how they will be supported from the offerings of the people and the first fruits of much of what is given. And yet, what about the Levites? How will they be supported? Well, that's what verse 21 picks up. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear sin and die. Well, friends, that right there, that notion brings us to to chapter 19 because we've seen how that barren landscape out in the wilderness is quickly becoming a mass graveyard, right? One plague after another has struck the people and the morgues there can't keep up. So what to do with all the dead? What to do with all of those who have become ceremonially unclean by their association and their contact with the dead? Well, that's what chapter 19 is all about. Where we encounter this rather curious and unusual ceremony that includes Water and the ashes of this red heifer that are sprinkled on those who are unclean in order to make them clean again. And friends, I think if we look at 18 and 19 together, what we're seeing is that the Lord supplies what his servants lack. We're seeing that the Lord supplies what his servants lack. So for those who lacked an inheritance, he would provide one. And for those who lacked ceremonial cleanliness... Right, what would the Lord do? He would provide a sacrifice in order to make them clean. Right, the Lord is supplying what his servants lack. And maybe to put this another way, we're seeing negatively, we're not self-made and we can't self-save. Right, those are two principles I think we're already seeing. We're not self-made and we can't self-save. And those are simply going to serve as our two points. First, we're not self-made. We're not self-made. Now, we like to think we are, don't we? So we read of figures like Oprah Winfrey, who, who grew up poor, largely abandoned by her mother, later abused tragically, and she had to run away, often living with her grandparents. And yet, she was able to build this media empire, now worth billions. Or take maybe J.K. Rowling, right, the single mom who was forced to live on welfare, who had a young baby with her moving from coffee shop to coffee shop trying to write manuscripts while that baby was crying and yet the perseverance paid off, right? She's been the highest paid author now for over a decade, at one time estimated over a billion. It's unclear how much money she has. Or like closer to home, Sam Walton, who grew up on a farm during the Depression. His first job as a sales trainee paid him $18.75 a week. That's what he made for a whole week, $18.75. And yet by the 1980s, he was the richest man in the world. We like to think of self-made individuals like those, those who've overcome adversity, right? Overcome obstacles and have risen to the top. But there's a good bit of research, friends, that also suggests that the differences between the most successful people and all other people is often just plain luck. Now, as Christians, 
We shouldn't really have a category for luck. But you know what I mean when I express that. Sort of being in, it appears, just the right place at the right time where things fortuitously fall in your lap. Now, we don't like to admit that. We want to think that our success lies solely in our own hands and there are entire industries built on telling us that's the case. That we can reach our destinies, right? Magazines even like Success or Forbes or Entrepreneur, right? It's all about what? Talent and and skill and mental toughness and tenacity, right? That's how you make it in the real world. And those do play a factor, don't get me wrong. But not the only factor. Friends, history is littered with many talented failures. Consider Israel up to this point. Is Israel a self-made people? Not in the slightest, right? Not in the slightest. Israel didn't deliver herself from Egypt, right? She didn't defeat the Egyptians by her superior military planning, by, by all that cunning, right? It wasn't her ingenuity. It wasn't her grit. It wasn't the youth of her leaders, right? Moses wasn't like a Zelensky. You know, he wasn't young, strong, always wearing like the tight green shirt, right? He was an octogenarian. He was an old guy who stuttered. And yet the Lord used him. Because it wasn't about Moses, it was about the Lord. Right? The Lord had led his people into the promised land. It was this land that was to be flown with milk and honey, right? spoke to abundance and affluence. But the challenge is that the priests, right, referring to Aaron first, even then the high priest, uh, and then so his next living son. So Aaron the high priest, his next living son would have been Eleazar. Right? The rest in that priestly line under Aaron. The challenge, though, as we get to this point in the story is they're not given a portion of the land. They don't have an inheritance like the rest of the tribes. So look at chapter 18, verse 20. Chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall, have you, shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So in other words, right there we're seeing the Lord is their portion, meaning the promised land, well, the promised land, their reward in that land won't be measured, right, in hills and valleys from that rock to that tree, right, cattle and the rest. It's not going to be measured, their inheritance in that way. Their inheritance is their reward and the opportunity to serve God there at the tabernacle. So how will they support themselves if they don't have such an inheritance? Right? Are they not sort of while off the clock, right, not on duty? Are they going to sort of get a second job, pursue sort of another business, right? Maybe the, they're left to think we're going to have to do some ag consulting on the side or maybe some, some weekend seminars on sort of spiritual renewal. What are they going to do to raise money? Well, that's what 18, beginning in verse 8, is about. The Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me. All the consecrated things of the people of Israel, I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering of theirs, every sin offering of theirs, every guilt offering of theirs, which they render to me, shall be most holy to you and to your sons. In a most holy place shall you eat it. Every male may eat it. It is holy to you. This is also yours, the contribution of their gift. All the wave offerings of the people of Israel, I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the grain, the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I give to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem, and their redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. All right, let's just stop there. 
Friends, what we're seeing is that the Lord hasn't left it up to the priests to figure out how they're going to supply for their future. Right? He has given them all these things we've just read, verse 8. Right? It is a gift, all the contributions, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, right? part given to the Lord, the fat, but all of the rest of it for the priests, for their families. Right? They don't have to go hunt food and trap it. They don't need to go raise it and tend to it as a flock. They don't have to do that. No, instead, what happens? Gorgeous fillets, right? New York strips delivered right to them from the Lord, right to their doors. Front door delivery, like better than Omaha steaks, right? Coming right to them. And it's free. And it just keeps coming. And it's not just meat, right? But the first fruits of the land, verse 12, What do we read? All the best of the oil and the best of the wine and of the grains. The first ripe fruits of all we read, all that is in the land, which they bring to the Lord. The Lord says, what shall be yours? So, you know, Christmas time is coming. And uh, in the financial industry, we used to always get these fancy baskets. And you go to the store and you could buy like pears for $2. But then you get the Henry and David basket, right? Super fancy, exotic pears and other fruits and your macadamia nuts and crazy stuff. These big, gorgeous baskets delivered. Friends, that's what they're getting. Like Henry and David baskets of the best, right? All the land has to offer coming to their door. So we've got dry-aged steaks, Henry and David baskets, and that's not it. Apparently there's no, no laws against, right, inter-tribal alcohol movements, Best of the French Bordeaux, the Napa Cabs, right, the Willamette Valley, like the Pinots, like all the best of those wines also coming to them. And if that's not enough, what can't be offered and must be redeemed, well, they also get that, right, the unclean animals, right, the firstborn. That redemption price that is given to the Lord at the temple, that becomes theirs too. Five shekels of silver, verse 16. You're talking about six months of pay. It's a lot of money. Direct deposit. So you can just, I mean, it's, I don't mean this to be sacrilegious, but they got a, a glass of wine in one hand, they got their phone open, and they're like, wow, look at another wire, another wire, another wire, another wire, right? They're, it's nice. They're being well provided for. And all that we're told is what, verse 19, it's a covenant of salt before the Lord. Now, if you read that passage during the week, that, that expression, covenant of salt, may have thrown you, it thrown me. But, you know, of course, salt is what? It's a preservative. And so this is speaking to this notion, a preservative, it's a notion of permanence. In the sense that this is an enduring agreement. All these subscription services, right? Omaha Steaks, Henry and David, right? The wine, all that coming through with the constant wires, right? Cha-ching, cha-ching, right? That is what the Lord intends to to happen perpetually under this covenant he's established with them. This is a great deal for the priests. And it's not just them, it's the Levites, right? What about those guys? They do all that hard work of carrying the the tents and the poles and the pegs and the curtains and so forth. Well, verse 21, right? They're not to be left out. They get what? They get a tithe, a tenth for their inheritance, And they get that in return for what? For their service at the tent of meeting. So a tenth of all that Israel had was to be given to the Levites. Again, large sums of money. A tenth of basically the the GDP of Israel was to go to the Levites that constituted maybe maybe 4% of the people. Keep in mind, there's no real federal government yet here in Israel. No swamp that's going to suck all that cash before it gets dispersed to them. None of that. No, there's no bridges to nowhere. There's no pork yet, right? These are Israelites. That was a joke, right? Unclean animals, no pork. You guys with me? Come on. Right? It's a lot of wealth for every Levite. And notice they don't have to do audits and they don't have to send out like pathetic support letters pleading for money. Verse 26, they can take it. We read in verse 26. When you... Take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance. 
So not to be political, but you know, with this, with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, there was all this money, like 10 billion or something, set aside for more IRS agents, some of whom apparently are armed, right? They come to take their money. Well, don't think of the Levites exactly like that, but they have the right to take it nonetheless. Right? They're not left to the philanthropic whims of the people. They can take what is theirs because the Lord has given it to them. And it is rightfully theirs. Well, friends, what are we to make of all this? You know, notice it's not simply wealth transfer and it's not simply pity. No, this is their reward. Verse 31. In return for your service and the tent of meeting. This is payment for all of the work that the priests and the Levites will do there in the tabernacle. And they're being rewarded handsomely for it. There is no doubt about that. And friends, I think first that speaks to the significant value that the Lord placed upon the service of the Levites and the priests. Which just makes Korah's rebellion all the more tragic, doesn't it? Given how the Lord had blessed them. Nonetheless, it speaks to the value the Lord had put on that service. It was no small task to do what they were asked to do, right? It was a weighty task. It was a weighty task. And that they're dealing with the most holy things, right? Israel's spiritual health, her very future, their own lives as a nation depended, and their welfare as a nation depended upon the Levites and the priests doing their job faithfully. But it wasn't just a weighty task, it was also a risky task. It was a risky task. We've already seen right, what happened to Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's first two sons. We, we already heard what happened to those guys. And then there's Uzzah with the ark, right, stumbling and instinctively reaching out and being struck down for it. All would pay with their lives. This was risky business. So I think here's the question for us as Christians as we think about texts like this. And I want to speak especially to those who are, who are members here of UBC. Do you similarly value those who give their lives for your spiritual well-being? Do you similarly value those who give their lives for your own spiritual well-being? Those who give the word to you, who regularly pray for you, who seek rather to shepherd and to guide and to lead you? Do you seek to be gracious with them? Do you seek to offer up the first fruits of what you have to them, the best of what you have, so they will not be in need? Now, this is obviously not a kind of keep them poor, keep them humble kind of approach to supporting those in ministry. Evidently, that expression, which some of us know, would not have been known to the Levites and the priests. That would not have been their experience. Because the work of pastor elders, friends, that too is weighty work. Right? Spiritual lives every day are on the line. False teaching, false living, right? that can make a, a shipwreck of souls. And it's not just weighty work, it is risky work too. You think of the haunting words of James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers. And you can also just put in there teachers, pastors, often used interchangeably. Not many should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Oh, friends, would that more pastors weigh those words. Would that more young men rushing off to seminary weigh words like that. Words that should send chills down our spine. Now we're dealing here in Numbers 18 with the system set up under the covenant of Sinai, right? The covenant with Moses. And in the new covenant where we stand in Christ, you can't just drag everything parallel sort of one for one. So when speaking of pastoral support, notice the Apostle Paul doesn't ever command churches, like when he's speaking to the church in Corinth, he doesn't command them to give them a tithe. He doesn't go back to Numbers 18 and say, do explicitly and exactly all these things, case closed. And just to be clear, there's more than one tithe in Israel. You can go to Deuteronomy to see a second. So if you want to talk about Old Testament tithes, you're actually talking over 20%. Right? So if you want to hold to the tithe, your elders won't critique you for that. 
We also just want to say we don't think that's necessarily, I don't think that's necessarily biblical. But 1 Corinthians 9 does refer actually directly to our text in Numbers 18. And it refers to our text when Paul's speaking about giving, and it draws a principle about giving. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, thinking of the priests, the Levites, those employed in the temple service get their food from the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial alterings. Sorry, the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that's the principle Paul draws from Numbers 18. Those who proclaim the gospel should also get their living by the gospel. And so at the risk of sounding self-serving, it's right for churches to amply provide for and support their full-time pastors. And just as one of your full-time pastors, I just want to say a word of thanks for how well you all as a church do that for us. For me, for my family, amply, graciously, right? I thank you for that. My wife thanks you for that. Our kids thank you for that. I'm grateful for the ways we've grown as a congregation and doing that for other pastoral staff as well. But, you know, later in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul won't give prescriptions again. He, he won't get to a tithe, but he will give more principles for giving. And though in 16 he's talking about benevolence offerings, I do think those principles nonetheless are helpful as we think about this. So if we're not going to run to Numbers 18 to think about how we give, right? So preferably I'd love it if you all didn't bring boxes of food and dump it on our front door, right? I don't know exactly what to do with that. Um, Nonetheless, I think there's helpful things from Numbers 18 And good for pastors to know too, because if you read Numbers 18, it's not just that the people who are supposed to support the work of the tabernacle, the work of ministry, it's also the Levites themselves that are called to give a tithe of the tithe. So the Levites are participating in the same thing that everyone else is participating in. So too with pastors. So I'll just give you five principles drawn from 1 Corinthians 16, but reflecting on how should we be thinking about giving as we look at a text like Numbers 18. And I do this not because it's budget season and because I'm so smart that I planned all this out back in early August or late July. Not at all. I trust the Lord had us here exactly as he wanted in this season. Five principles. Giving is to be done first regularly. The first day of the week, Paul says, when they meet. It's not done just sporadically on occasion Like when a bonus check comes through or when you look at your account and you're like, oh, we have a little bit of money left. It's to be a regular, disciplined practice. Principle one, it's done regularly. Principle two, it's done universally. As in Paul will say, let each one of you, speaking to the congregation there at Corinth, right? Not just for the wealthy or those who feel like they have a little extra to spare, If the widow can give her widow's might, Paul assumes that even those who are poor in the congregation can support something. So it's, it's done regularly, it's done universally, it's also done systematically, and that they're to set aside a specific amount. So it's not whimsical, it's not impulsive, right? It's planned, kind of budget in hand, sort of giving. There is a there's thought and there's strategy behind the amount and it's done forth proportionally because as Paul writes the church in Corinth he says you should give sort of as you prosper in other words it's not going to be a fixed amount that's static and the same across all because some people in God's grace have prospered more than others some have prospered less than others Paul's assumption is that those who are blessed with more are able to give more and it's fifth it's done freely Right, so he says, so there will be no collecting when he has to come one day for the money. Right? He doesn't want to fall back to gimmicks, doesn't want to get to sort of guilt and go to manipulation and, and, and push them under compulsion. He does not want to resort to those kind of ruses, not at all. No, he, he'll later say in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
So members of UBC, I think those are great ways for you to think about how to pray as you think about supporting the work of the ministry. As the Israelites were to support the work of the tabernacle, how do we support the work here? It ought to be done. Our giving regularly, universally, right? Regularly, so we plan. Universally, all are a part of it systematically. It's thought through in advance, budget in hand. It's done proportionally as each has funds and ability and freely, right? Not reluctantly. Now, I've heard it said recently, I think some have have wondered, um, is giving to the church, like UBC right now, is that even necessary because we've had these budget surpluses, you know, the last year or two? Well, let me be clear to that. Yes, it's still important. Yes, it's still important, even the budget overages, in the sense that we have made, right, in our regular budget, we've made what? Commitments to staff. We've made commitments to missionaries on the field and the support and care of them. We've made commitment to other ministries, to, to children's ministry, whether or not it's in workers or in cleaning, making sure the rooms are nice and provided and, and in a healthy environment, whether or not it's utilities, right, so we can keep the lights on. All of that is dependent upon the regular giving of the church, which, in the providence of God, I just might bring up at this point, is behind. I'll leave that in your conscience. But more to the point, friends, I just want to suggest that like, if you're wondering if the church needs it on the base of where the giving is at present, I think that question actually misses the point. More to the point, I think that question misses the point. Friends, at the end of the day, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need a dime of what we have. God himself is fully sufficient in himself. He lacks nothing. And no amount of giving that you can give is going to make him fuller in that sense. Like he has less need. No, we give not because God needs it. Not even fundamentally because we as a church need it. Friends, we give because we need it. Because we need to do it. For when we give, what are we doing? We're loosening the chains that money can wrap around our own hearts by making it clear that God himself is sufficient. That life and the pursuit of happiness doesn't consist in just the amassing of more stuff. It's part of how we declare our own independence from the tyranny, not of the Brits, but from the tyranny of what? Of money. Of money. And all the damage that money can do to our own souls. Right, we've got to decide if, if we're going to live for the kingdom of this world and invest and pour our resources into that which perishes, spoils, and fades, or whether or not we're going to invest it in the kingdom of heaven. And friends, a good question to ask of yourselves is as you look about your own practices of spending and giving, what kingdom does that suggest you're currently living for? We're not self-made. God is the gracious giver of all good gifts. That's true for the Israelite. That's true for the Levite. That's true for us. But not only are we not self-made, secondly, we can't self-save. We can't self-save. And that's part of what we see pictured in the first seven verses of chapter 18. Right? What are the priests and Levites to do? What are they to do there in the tabernacle? Twice we read in chapter 18, verse 1, they're to what? They are to bear iniquity. They're to bear iniquity. Now, friends, there's lots of things as human beings we're pretty good at bearing. We can bear trials. We can bear sufferings. We can bear loss, right? We can bear the weather of years on our bodies and faces. Right? We're, we're not especially fast. We're not especially powerful. But even we as humans can run long distances and long miles. We can actually uniquely, of all people, we can carry things with our hands, load things on our shoulders. Right? There's a lot we can bear in that sense. And we're uniquely equipped to bear things. But friends, there's one thing that you and I, we cannot bear. We cannot carry it. And friends, that's sin. That's iniquity. That's something we can't bear and carry. It's why at the entrance to the tabernacle, there's what? There's an altar where sacrifices are made. It's why the priesthood exists in, an, in order to perform those sacrifices. And it's why you need the whole Levitical system and the rest to ensure that everything that the tabernacle is set up and arranged to do happens so those sacrifices of the priests can be made. And the expression repeated over and over 
in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 18 is what? It's to keep guard. Right? What are they to do? They're to keep guard, verse 3. And they're to keep guard lest the people die. And they shall join you, the Levites, in keeping guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, so that no outsider shall come near. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar. And verse 7, you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood. Right? You could just sort of keep going. There's all this emphasis and focus on guarding. And why must they keep guard? Well, like we saw back in chapters 1 and chapters 3, it's not because God's worried someone might sneak in and steal him at night. That's not what God's worried about. He doesn't need to hire the Levites for protection, sort of like their social, not social security, but secret service, right? Those are two different things. Secret service. They're not like secret service of the government. No, it's because God, what is he? He's holy. He is gloriously and yet piercingly holy, which is why no outer outsider can stroll into his presence, right? The, the Levites were specially tasked to pre- prevent fools from rushing in where angels fear to tread. Right? That's what they were tasked to do. Don't let these fools rush in where only angels fear to tread. Theirs, you could say, the Levites and the priests, theirs was a ministry of exclusion. Right? Keep the people out for their own benefit. Right? Because at the heart of God's holiness, if we're exposed to it, it vaporizes us. Is that not what Korah and his 250, right? all those prominent men who thought they could pretend and play priests What happened when they were confronted with this holy God and he stood among them? They were vaporized. They were consumed, right? Like lightning consumes stubble. You know, it's interesting, lightning, you know, it's a problem for many centuries, right? Millennia, what happens? It strikes things, it sets them on fire. So in old cities, what did you have? The tallest building was usually a church. What happens during a big lightning storm? Strikes the church, usually made of wood. Those things go up in flames like that. And the next thing you know, a whole city block burning up. And so what happens? They, they invented what? Lightning rods. Ben Franklin did that. Invented a lightning rod. It's sometimes called a Franklin rod. I think he did it in like the 1750s. And they would put it on the top of the tallest building, usually a church, in order to what? To absorb the, the, the force and the electricity, right, of that lightning and dissipate it in order to keep the structure safe. And in, uh, you'll sometimes find these lightning rods in like old museums and the old ones will sometimes have a glass ball on them because they would sometimes put those where they would know if the lightning hit it, the glass would shatter. They'd know, hey, the lightning rod worked, right? So those are worth a lot. That's not the point of the sermon at any rate. Um, I mention all that, lightning rods, because that's kind of how the priests and the Levites serviced amongst the people. They were like spiritual lightning rods. Spiritual lightning rods. Right, through the offerings and sacrifices and through their service there at the temple, they would effectively absorb and dissipate the wrath of God so it wouldn't consume the people. Because those who were holy and pure and clean and undefiled, only those people were allowed into the presence of God. And that's what brings us to chapter 19, friends. Because what's tragically become all too normal amongst Israel? It's death. The Israelites at this point, they're dropping like flies in the wilderness. And for the next 40 years, an entire generation of people is going to perish. And we saw back in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that what is, what's one thing that makes people especially unclean? We thought of it with the Nazarite vow even. It's contact with the dead contact with the dead and so they had to be put what outside the camp if you had contact with the dead and that's not because the Israelites were superstitious and it wasn't like this was a a public health you know regimen or something it wasn't for those reasons no in putting them outside the camp in this contact with death the Lord was trying to teach them something and give them a deeper spiritual truth God was trying to help his people see the connection between sin and and death. How sin is the cause of death and how death is correspondingly the consequence of sin. And yet who is the Lord from Genesis 1 on? The Lord is the author of life, the Lord of life, the one who gives life. And so all that approach him must reflect that life. Death has no place in God's presence. Death is in fact God's great arch enemy. 
Because one day we're told he's going to what? Vanquish death. Every trace of death. Crush death under his feet by the one who conquered death. That's what we long to. That's what we look forward to. That day when death no longer comes to steal and kill and destroy those loved by us, those closest to us, we long for that day when it truly and finally comes. But it hasn't yet come, and it's not come for Israel. And so how are those who have had contact with the dead to be cleansed? Well, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, talk about this special offering. And they're to prepare it, and they're to offer up this pure red heifer, and they're to, to sacrifice it, and they're to turn this animal into ash. And then in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 19, and then in 14 to 19, we're given two examples of how those who have had contact with the dead, how they're to be cleansed by that offering of ash. So look at verse 17, chapter 19, verse 17. For the unclean, that is those who have had in some way contact with the dead, they shall take some ashes of the burnt offering, of the burnt sin offering, and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. And then a clean person, so not one of the unclean, but a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on all the persons who were there and on whomever touched the bone or the slain of the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and the seventh day. And thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. And at evening he shall be clean. So we're seeing by this practice how those who are stained by death can nonetheless be washed, made white and purified. Which brings us to the case of that curious offering. What kind of offering can wash away the stain of death? What kind of offering can do that? It's not a furious washing of the hands, if you know, you know Lady Macbeth uh, in Shakespeare's novel. Right? It's not just a furious washing of the hands that can remove the, the stain of death. It's, it's no vigorous rinsing. It's no industrial solvent, right? no bleach. Those things can't get rid of the stain of death. What can remove it? Look at chapter 19, verse 2. This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, that's Aaron's son. And it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar, the priest, shall take some of its blood with his finger, sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times, and the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer." And then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. So let's just stop there at the end of verse 7. Now at first glance, this may read like any other sacrifice we read in Leviticus or elsewhere in the Old Testament. But friends, at closer glance, this sacrifice is actually a bit different. Because it's, in fact, the only sacrifice, I believe, in the Old Testament where the color, right, of the cow, of the heifer, where the color of the animal is actually prescribed, or actually told. It has to be red. So not only pure and without defect, right, speaking to a perfect animal, it has to be a red animal. And then notice it's burned with what? Well, with reddish cedar wood and with sort of red scarlet yarn. So there's a concern, it seems, for these things that are red, most likely a, a signifying blood. And it's rather curiously the case that this is the only sacrifice in the Old Testament where the animal is burned with its blood. Right? Normally the blood would be drained and then the animal would be burned and sacrificed, but not in this case. Right? The whole animal is included. Blood as well, a little bit sprinkled, but the rest made explicit, burned with blood, all of it turned into ash. And it's the blood, it seems, that makes that ash effective. 
right? It's Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is what? There's no forgiveness of sins. But notice where as well, where is the sacrifice to be offered? Not there at the tabernacle, not there at the altar where most sacrifices would be offered up. No, it's to be offered up where? A long distance away, outside the camp. And then the ashes are to be stored outside the camp. And then very curiously, those who administer this cleansing ash, they become unclean while the unclean with the sprinkling of it become clean, which is a curious thing as well. And friend, are you beginning, as you slow down and take a closer look, are you beginning to see the picture taking shape in these verses of one who would be morally perfect and pure like this offering, right? Without spot, without any blemish, one who would be taken outside the camp, outside the city gate, far away from the temple, and there be sacrificed. One who would be sacrificed whole, not a bone broken, not blood drained, right, but wholly offered up. And one who is willing to submit and substitute his cleanliness and substitute his own cleanliness so that another may be clean. He takes the uncleanliness and he grants cleanliness. Are you seeing what's being pictured? Are you seeing how this sacrifice is meant to point forward to the unique sacrifice of Jesus Christ? It's what Hebrews 9 makes clear that Mitzi read just a bit early in the service. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, and here's our text, right, with the ashes of a heifer, If that can sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Friends, we're seeing it's only the blood of Jesus Christ that can wash the stain of death, that can cleanse our blood-soaked hands, right? Only his blood can make the foulest clean as we sing. Only his blood availed for me. You know, if you were visiting this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, every major religion out there is autosoteric in the sense that what it does is it provides a system of salvation. It says you do these things and you can save yourself. So in Islam, redemption is not a gift, Redemption in Islam is an act. It's what you do. In Buddhism, it consists what? In mortifying the desires for existence and, and seeking to become your own light. Right? Even through prayers and sacrifices and intricate ceremonies and, and concern about ethical conduct, right? Pharisaical Judaism, which misunderstood what all this was meant to point to, and Catholicism, as it is laid out and as they teach. All those are our meritorious schemes whereby we cooperate with God in order to save ourselves. It's why when you say God helps those who help themselves, the vast majority of Americans are like, yeah, that's exactly right. We like to be our own saviors. We like to have God in our debt. But what distinguishes biblical Christianity from all other world religions is that Christianity is not autosoteric. We can't save ourselves, which is why Jesus came, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Right? He himself bore our sin on his body, on the tree, so that by his wounds, right? not by our works, But by his wounds, we are healed. Friends, only Jesus bore the stain of death and conquered death. And he did that by rising from the grave. Only he had the power to crush and defeat our great enemy, death itself, once and for all. So if you come and you're not a Christian, do not be fooled. You cannot save yourself. Only Christ can save you. The only one who can do it. This Jesus is. He can, and he alone. And you can be saved today 
by repenting of your sins, by just turning from them and trusting in this Christ. And in doing so, you can be restored to this God. You can be welcomed back to this God by repenting and turning and believing. And that's what's offered up to you in this sacrifice. And there's not another way. Because when you read chapter 19, what happens for the one who refuses to be cleansed from the stain of death, that one is put out of the camp and put out of God's presence with no way back. My friends, that brings us back to Invictus. And you know, as a poem, right, that poem preaches. You can recite it. You can say that right before a game, right, at halftime, you're down and out. You know, you go to that poem, like, encourage the team, right? I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul, all that stuff. That resonates with us because we like to think that power resides within us. But friends, what many of us don't know is that William Ernest Henley, he wrote that poem while shuddering with fear. He wrote that poem already having lost one leg, likely losing another from tuberculosis, fearing and despairing. He talked about the unconquerable soul. That's what he wanted to be. That's not who he was. He felt defeated. He despaired even of life itself. That poem for him was nothing short of wishful thinking. And friends, spiritually speaking, a poem like that, that's all it ever is. The notion that we're sufficient by our own grit and determination, right? We can determine our destiny. Yeah, that'll sell, but it won't get you to heaven. Friends, Numbers 18 and 19 have helped us see we're not self-made and we can't self-save. There is an unconquerable soul. There is a true evictus. It's just not us. Friend, who will you trust in this morning then? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that as we come to texts like this, we think carefully and afresh about them. We are grateful that everything we lack, you graciously provide. All that we need for life and godliness, Lord, you give in the person of Christ and through the spirit of Christ to us. And we give you praise that you are this gracious God who showers grace upon all those who humble themselves before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.